Hello and welcome to the talk from Felaban, a podcast where we chat about the most relevant topics for the banking industry in Latin America. I have the pleasure to be here in Guatemala City with Brett King, a fintech entrepreneur and futurist, among other things. We will discuss digitalization and banking in Latin America. So, uh, Brett, uh, what do you think is, the, is happening in the, in the Latin American market? Probably the biggest story is, um, you know, the various range of mobile wallets. You know, we have PIX in, in Mexico, we have RapiPay, you know, we have uh, um, various mobile wallet initiatives that are really sort of starting to get some, some traction across the region. Um, and th this is really a very good signal in terms of financial inclusion because people who have never used banking before are now starting to become uh, financially included because of mobile wallets. Um, another good il illustration you know, of this is Nubank's success in Latin America. Um, you know, Nubank has, uh, you know, I, the last estimates, estimates I saw is about 40, 50% of their customer base are newly banked. Um, and this is really about the fact that Um, wallet platforms and, and challenger banks like this, um, the, these previously unattractive segments can now uh, be banked on the, on the mobile platform. So that, that's the big story from my perspective. And uh, with regards to banks and their digital journey, uh, do you think that in Latin America they, there are some progress, there is some progress and how do you think Things are getting shaped because I, sure. from my perspective, when I, you know, I read a lot about Latin American banks, as banks from other parts of the world, and they are always stressing that their focus is uh, digitalization. So I'm just curious, you know, from your uh, expert perspective, if sure. you think this is happening? Well, I think there has definitely been more pressure put on uh, LATAM, and in fact, on the banking sector as a whole, because of the pandemic in terms of digitization. You know, we saw, uh, as Jamie Dimon said, that 10 years of investment in digitalization or digital transformation paid off over two years in the pandemic. Um, and the success more recently on the mobile side with the challenges and the wallets has put a lot of pressure on the local players. And it, it depends on which market you're in as to how they've responded to that. Some um, have had more pressure from the regulators to uh, speed up their work on the digital side with open banking and things like that. Others have uh, taken uh, not as aggressive a stance, you know. Of course, we have uh, also crypto, um, like in Ecuador and others, uh, you know, uh, having more of an impact uh, in some markets. Um, but I think, uh, generally speaking, um, the Latin American banks are doing fairly well, given, um, you know, the, the, the region and the uh, complexities of uh, digital transformation. Um, I think in, in the case of um, Brazil and Mexico, probably they're ahead of the United States in terms of transformation on a, on a sector basis. And why makes say that? Well, part of this is just the, the nature of the fintechs and the wallets in the ecosystem, that that produces pressure for them to digitize. And the US has been very resistant to, re resistant to both the wallet ecosystems and um, the, uh, the fintech side. So uh, most of uh, the Latin American markets now have a fintech charter or have some form of payments licensing or um, neobank licensing that is available. The US still does not. 
you know, if you want to do a, a neo bank or a challenger bank in the US, you need a full banking license, which if you look at the capital adequacy requirements of a traditional banking license versus a fintech license, say in the UK, and um, we're talking about, you know, uh, maybe, you know, $3 million in the UK um, and $100 million in the US to really have a viable um, startup, which means that, uh, you know, it's a, mo- a lot more complex. Um, also, you have legacy payments infrastructure in, in the US and um, you know, in, in Europe, and you have to first get over those legacy elements. But a lot of what we see in LATAM, particularly for the mobile wallets, is greenfield, that, that we haven't had um, strong payments architecture in place. So it's come into a, a, a space, much like what happened in China, where you have cash-dominant economies, but the security of mobile and the convenience of mobile is a real benefit. But it doesn't have to displace checks or plastic cards or things like that in the same way um, that has has had to in the US. And I was just curious to understand if um, all these fintechs are kind of established businesses. I mean, now I'm talking, of course, generally. But if we kind of look at their balance sheet, if we think it's like a viable business, or uh, there are still kind of questions that maybe they, uh, you know, if they can be mature businesses, or it's just something that kind of startups that will blow up something. Well, of course, at the moment, it's a very interesting time to be talking about this with the collapse of uh, FTX. And, um, you know, this is obviously going to have some secondary effects on the fintech market. Um, But let's keep in mind, in 2021, we had a record investment in fintech, over $200 um, invested in fintech. One in five venture capital deals around the world were fintechs. And if you look historically at venture capital investment in markets like fintech, then profitability is not their primary concern. It's growth and market share, you know. Um, Amazon didn't get pressure to go profitable for 20 years. So I don't think that the neobanks are necessarily going to have um, that that pressure. However, um, you know, good... Uh, fiduciary uh, management is becoming more important. So we're hearing uh, venture capitalists talk more about things like what's your lifetime value, how are you going to get more share of the wallet, you know, how are you going to open up to credit access and things like that and managing credit, you know, with what we've seen with the likes of Klarna and the, and the issues they've had. Um, so there is a maturation process happening here. And I think if you look at the investment cycle moving forward over the next couple of years, um, you are going to see... Uh, um, investors looking for fintech companies that are managing their runway effectively, but still able to maintain that low cost of customer acquisition. Um, and, and that's really where the fintechs are separating themselves from the banks. You know, if you look at Nubank in LATAM with 55 million customers now, the same number of customers as Itaú, um, they've acquired that same number of customers in just eight years compared with the 96 years or whatever it is that Itaú has been around. Um, and if you look at you know, WeBank in China or Revolut in, in um, the US, is, uh, sorry, in, uh, in Europe as examples, you know, that's the thing that really differentiates them, the ability to acquire customers very cost-effectively at, at scale. And that's where the gap between the digital players and the incumbents is really opening up. And, and why do you think they are able to do that? Is it just because they, are, uh, they don't have like a legacy infrastructure costs or 
All of the above, yes. Um, legacy is definitely a key element. Um, you know, if you think about just the tech stack that the fintechs have, um, you know, the, the ability to onboard a customer digitally is a core competency of a fintech. Whereas for the traditional banks, they've had to bolt that on to their core system. And often, you know, their entire business from a compliance and a risk perspective has been um, based around getting a signature on a piece of paper to, you know, de-risk the business. So you've got a very different mindset. And so, first of all, you have to circumvent the legacy process, then the legacy thinking and the legacy policy to be able to really acquire um, digitally for, for the bank. And then what you don't have is you don't have digitally native staff. So when you look at things like acquisition campaigns and so forth, yeah, they can run social media campaigns, but they're using agencies to do a lot of that. Whereas this becomes a core competency for the fintechs and they develop this skill set in, internally. Um, and that's really um, the difference. They, they're just able to you know, do a lot of A-B testing, a lot of tweaking of, of their campaign approaches and so forth to improve it over time. And the other element is because their experience, because they've designed the apps and the business for optimal service experience for customers, customers are just more likely to refer these the fintechs to their friends and family, which means that their referral business uh, is higher, which means the cost of acquisition is lower as well. Very interesting. And going back to you know the banks in Latin America, now we are here in Guatemala, where you know when uh, where is happening. I don't know if you think that there are other things that we should align in terms of their digital journey or their technology infrastructure, maybe compared to other regions. Well, well, I think there's some very interesting opportunities in LATAM. Um, and I think, you know, if, if, if you look at um, central bank digital currencies, for an example, I think there's an opportunity for LATAM to maybe think about a regional approach to CBDCs. I don't think it makes sense for every country in Latin America to have uh, their own CBDC. Well, because um, the if you look at the real effect of CBDCs, it will be on wholesale trade, you know, cross-border commerce. That's where the the heavy lifting of central bank digital currencies will be. Um, and um, this, you know, when you're looking at cross-border trade and commerce, it makes so much more sense to have like a shared CBDC so architecture. Would be the same yeah. For and other yes, absolutely. So I think this but is how. No, 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 no. But by its nature, I think a regional CBDC would become a common digital currency, right? And so this may be a way to bring um, together Latin American trade in a, in a way that we, I think we'll see this develop in China. Um, you know, China is doing now partnerships with Singapore and uh, with Hong Kong, you know, possibly with Taiwan, um, you know, but also throughout ASEAN. The mobile wallets like Alipay and WeChat Pay already have big uh, penetration in Asia. So then allowing those wallets to offer Chinese CBDC is going to be fairly simple from a regional perspective. And that, I think, will become sort of the dominant cross-border wholesale trade platform. Um, and that is a problem for um, the US in terms of dollar dominance. So that, that opportunity also exists, I think, in LATAM to sort of really build... Um, trade here. But apart from that, I think the big opportunity we are seeing, um, you know, players like Rappi Pay and Nubank um, are very successful at um, launching in new markets because 
If you are a digital player, your ability to go into a new market is mm -hmm. only a licensing question. It's not a technology question. Because... Yeah, because a, 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 like Rappi was born as a delivery business, right? Exactly. It's quite interesting. Yeah. And this is similar with... Uh, you know, if you look at Grab and, and even Ali, Alipay, you know, it's sat on top of Alibaba, very similar to Amazon's business. So a lot of them come the super app route. You know, the wallets come from the super app route based on, on uh, sort of retail uh, mobile commerce. And again, that's an opportunity for the growth of wallets here because e-commerce was never very big in LATAM. Yes, you know, we had some pockets in Brazil and Argentina and Mexico, but for the rest of LATAM, um, you know, the e-commerce that we have on mobile phones is really uh, the boom that's happening on the on the commerce side here and you need the wallet infrastructure to to really make uh, that mobile commerce happen not just from a retail perspective but uh, you know um, merchant acquiring and those other elements as well and um, also another thing topic i think that there are one of your articles that you were talking about financial inclusion in um uh, you know in some parts of the world and you were saying that when you know, the focus of financial inclusion to create financial inclusion, people always think about, oh, let's build more like ATMs or let's right. build more branches. But in reality, this is not, probably it's not the way to go. Well, so it, since financial inclusion is really a relevant topic. It, absolutely. America, I think yeah, there yeah. are not changes. I was wondering what kind of suggestion do you have for the banks or for the regulators? So, um, I, I mean, what we do know is that um, we have brought on about 2 billion people into the financial services system over the last, you know, 16, 17 years as a result of, of the mobile phone, right? Um, so we have had much faster financial inclusion from the mobile phone than we ever had from branches and ATMs, uh, you know, in that traditional banking business. Um, and so that that's really been the opportunity. But the last mile, getting the last... 10 or 20% of the population financially included requires digital inclusion now, right? Because we need to give them access to the internet um, and access to cheap phone technology. The phones are getting cheaper, but internet access is, uh, is something that's not um, uh, ubiquitous yet. But um, if you think about the 21st century, the pandemic has already proved that the 21st century is going to require digital inclusion for access to better quality education, for access to telehealth services and so forth, we're going to need digital inclusion anyway. So if we fix the digital inclusion problem, we will fix the financial inclusion problem with, with the mobile technology. And then then you get into metaverse and smart yeah, glasses. Because I was thinking, like yeah, you're right about this, but then I was also thinking that maybe financial inclusion is also... Uh, you know, being able to access loan at good rates, right? And maybe right. That, that's where there are issues. Well, the, right? Yeah, the real opportunity we're finding um, there, again, Nubank and, and WeBank out of Shenzhen in China are really good examples of offering credit to previously unbanked people and using um, behavioral credit uh, analytics instead of traditional credit metrics. So, you know, if in, in the United States, you know, where, where I live part-time at least, um, you know, your ability to access credit is completely dependent on your credit score. So when I first moved to the US, even though offshore I had excellent credit rating, none of that mattered in the United States and that prevented me from getting access to credit, you know, for, uh, for the first few years of my residence there. 
Um, and these credit systems that we've developed on the traditional banking system, these have been exclusionary in terms of access to credit. What mobile does is it enables us to do some very simple analytics on things like cash flow behavior and how you manage your money and look at behavior as a predictor of default, you know, which is much more accurate than a credit score you know, or a credit agency rating as, as we've built in the Western system. So this means um, also that more people are going to get access to credit more, more quickly. And also another thing that I'm quite interested in learning about is like, do you think from your point of view, um, again, as compared to other regions, do you think that the bank, banks in Latin America see fintechs as competitors or um, more potential partners, or they are, they will be pushed yeah. to partner with them? Well, I think, um, you know, we, we call it cooperation, right? Co cooperation and competition. Um, but the banks who've invested in fintechs, I think, have all done fairly well. The challenge has been when there's partnerships with fintechs, does the fintech culture and the bank culture, do they, they meld? Uh, and this has been a challenge for many banks who have tried partnerships with fintechs where there's been a cultural clash so ultimately, whether they're investing in fintechs to get intelligence on how the fintechs are performing or whether they're partnering with fintechs, it does require that sort of digital first mindset from an executive perspective, you know, from the CEO down. And if you look at the banks that have done well with this, you know, a good example is uh, TD Bank in Canada. Um, Rizwan, Rizwan Kalfan, who's the chief digital officer there, very progressive guy. And you know, they did an acquisition of uh, Layer 6, uh, a uh, AI company recently. They partnered with Movin, my fintech, very early back in 2014 on financial wellness tools, which was really successful for them. But a lot of it's driven by this one personality who was uh, really strong in terms of uh, digital. So you need, or Piyush Gupta at DBS is another good example. You need these strong characters who really are pushing the business to go digital. And um, you know you need that um, culture to, to come through the organization. And, and finally, I don't know, something else that I haven't maybe asked you and that you feel is, is worth mentioning so regarding banks or fintechs in Latin America, probably. Well, well I mean, um, I think the big issue is digital inclusion that leads to financial inclusion. But the, the next big thing, of course, over the next decade will be the use of artificial intelligence. And uh, the use of AI is going to revolutionize the way we think about the operational side of banks. And it's also going to revolutionize regulation. So if you think about money laundering and anti-money laundering you know, elements, that's all going to have to move to artificial intelligence. So this means the regulators themselves, whether it's CBDC or whether it's uh, AML and, and various elements, you know, identity uh, frameworks and so forth, they've all got to move towards artificial intelligence and these, these core technologies. And that is transformational because you know, we've always thought as, uh, of the regulators as these legal components of the system, preventing systemic risk, but now they have to become an infrastructure play as well. Um, and and uh, the banks themselves will become smaller and more efficient because of the use of AI. But again, this is where these new entrants into the market who are already developing these technologies probably have an advantage and will probably grow at a faster rate. So AI is where it's going to be happening in the next few years. Okay. And finally, 
how do you think, how do you see the bank of the future, the bring the bank of the future will look like, if there will be a bank? Well, it depends how far in the future, you know, but um, yeah, by, by the 2050s, 2060s, most of what we consider banking today will just be algorithms and highly automated, you know, access to credit, um, savings, operation of markets, you know, um, a lot of that's going to be based on smart contracts and most of the markets will be uh, highly autonomous. Um, most of our industries will be highly autonomous, you know, and so... Um, uh, I, it's very, you know, once you look out 30, 40, 50 years, then, then very different. But in the meantime, probably the biggest change will be on the mission that banks have. So by the mid-2030s, because of the effect of climate change, banks will have to be seen to be good corporate citizens for, uh, for the economies they, they sit in. And that is not a role that banks have traditionally been very comfortable with. They're, they're more market participants than they are participants in the economy from a, 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 a policy perspective. And that, there's going to be a lot of pressure on banks to be you know, sustainable and good, good corporate citizens and um, helping people manage their money more effectively and things like that. So um, the mission for banks is going to significantly change. But there's going to be a lot less banks in the way we think of them today and a lot more banking embedded in the world through technology. Okay. Well, thank you very much. You're very right. welcome. It was really interesting, and uh, yeah, please enjoy your last time in Guatemala. Yes, thank you very much. Thank nice to be here. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and please check our website at thebanker.com to listen to the other episode of the Talk of Element.